Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson Sizzo here at the Center for Internet Security, and I'm joined today by Sawyer Miller, Senior Manager at Risk360. Sawyer, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Sawyer, how about you give us a quick bio and how you got into the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually came up more on the software side of industry. Um, I was doing a lot of uh, customer-facing work with various software companies. Um, and as I grew in that profession, I, I began to really see the need for security. A lot of my customers started asking me a lot of very heavy security-related questions. Um, and so when I, I had an opportunity to join Risk360 uh, about five years ago, um, I really jumped at it. I was very excited. So I, I got into the industry, started with some you know, basic understanding and knowledge, um, but I, I had a lot more deep-seated understanding of how things worked with software. I just didn't necessarily understand the security best practices. So I've spent the last five years really honing that um, and, and studying the different frameworks. Um, I specialize in ISO. I lead the ISO practice at Risk360. Um, I've done a lot of work with CIS, obviously. Um, you know, looked at those controls quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just, you know, constantly trying to learn more and more. Um, that's what I love about this industry. There's so many layers and, and they continue to, to develop. Um, they, they never get stale. Um, there's always more to learn. Exactly right. No question. And that's, uh, I just want to highlight the partnership that we've had, Sawyer. Just some great success this year. Uh, CIS um, moved and um, got to ISO 27000 and 27701 certified. Uh, successfully with uh, with the help of Sawyer and team. So uh, big congratulations to us all. But really, it leads me to to really the emphasis of this particular episode, Sawyer. And again, I iterate that me and Sawyer and others here, we could talk about this for probably a week and still uh, have things to talk about, is where compliance has its utility, but it doesn't necessarily mean an organization is secure. Let me give a couple examples, or at least my thoughts in this space, and, and then it can lead us down uh, this particular path. So we've often heard compliance does not equal security. In my mind, though, I, I think there's a strong alignment. I think with good security, a byproduct of that is following a framework, a best practice, the ones that we've been working together on, sorry, and the ones in your career you've uh, you know learned, perfected, and maybe able to help organizations apply. But I see it as being a byproduct of just good security practice. We can align to a particular framework. We do the right things in security, you know, our basic hygiene. And then that leads to not only compliance, but also an improvement in security. And I also want to reference, and I think it's very important, is the continuous learning. Our environment is completely changing. I mean, all the time. I mean, you know, change is uh, the constant, right? And it requires us to continuously practice, continuously improve our processes because the, you know, I'll use the onion model. The layers of that onion are, are, are there's 
just growing. That onion, it just keeps growing and growing and growing as more and more layers. So let me kind of stop there, get your perspective, your thoughts, and uh, and does that align to your thinking in this space? It does, yeah. It definitely does. Um, something I've, I've realized as I've um, grown in this industry is that a lot of these compliance frameworks um, lay out a particular way of thinking more so than a prescriptive set of things to do to make you more secure. And, and to me, I think that's kind of the core of the difference, right? Security, at the end of the day, security posture comes down to what you have implemented, right? You can think about security, you can have the best intentions, but if you've not implemented appropriate safeguards, you're going to be vulnerable. Um, and, and these compliance frameworks, I think a lot of companies, especially new ones, um, take the time to understand the philosophy and sort of the way that these are written um, and, and, you know, maybe what it takes to check the box and get through the audit. Um, but they're not spending the time they necessarily need to on the true risk management side of understanding what are the technical controls that we need to implement to truly protect ourselves against the threats out there and to you know, help uh, shade and cover our, our vulnerabilities that are a part of doing business? Oh, absolutely. No, I think that's, um, I think the key message, uh, the word that I see is risk, right? If it's yeah. not risk informed, uh, I think you're just leading to yourself to a checkbox type approach. And I've seen programs. And to be honest, I've run programs that way. That was the underlying mm -hmm. mission. That was the underlying goal. But then what you try and do, and, and what I did was uh, add a flavor of, as you mentioned, a security posture. Here mm -hmm. are the technical controls that are going to lead us to underlying success to checking that particular box. But really, I get the, you know, the side effect of that, which is an appropriate approach to security where I feel comfortable. You know, we I'm sure you've got the question, you know, what keeps you up at night? And we've got to solve that. And I think underlying that is the risk, aligning risk to an underlying element of tolerance, you know, where's the appetite or where do we see a fundamental issue in the vulnerabilities, the threats to our organization allows us to really adjust that capability, that understanding, as it were, within an organization. So both the capability, our understanding. And I really like the fact that you used a philosophy here because it truly is, um, I think on the, you know, the inception of these particular frameworks, when you're going through certification or when you, you know, kind of doing an engagement that we've been through is, you know, what, what do you think about security and really trying to get the, the thoughts of how the security practitioners are thinking about it, I think can lead to many different areas, Sawyer. I think it leads you to different, oh, this is, you know, uh, you know, if the, let me, I'll give an example. Let's try this. So if you ask, you know, what are your thoughts about security? What's leadership in terms of security within the organization? Oh, we're strictly here to get uh, ISO 27001 for a contract. Okay, that, that to me then says there's less about security and it's more about the checklist approach, i.e., I, you know, I would want to inform, and I sure you do, where it's not just about the checklist, but think about these controls and really then maybe it's an adjustment to risk but also their thoughts and philosophy about why practice this, why even go through this process just to, you know, get a checkbox and be uh, compliant when you can also get the benefit of uh, being secure as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we, 
we all, you know, live and work. Um, well, most of us live and work in, you know, a um, free enterprise environment where you do have to have ROI, right? You do have to have a positive ROI on some type of a, you know, uh, expense you're going to put into making the security program better. It does need to make sense from a business perspective. So, you know, it's important to have those like business drivers, you know, customers need to see this. Uh, we have a deal on the line, that type of stuff. But but you have to marry the two together. Um, otherwise, you know, you really run the risk of not only losing that business down the road if something happens, um, you know, there's a security incident and they see that you've not taken it seriously, which is the reason they wanted you to go after that particular certification to begin with. But you also run the risk of potentially irreversible reputational damage. Um, we've seen some very, you know, I would call them prestigious brands this year in the news for all kinds of different incidents. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's hard to say that they've taken like a huge hit on business for having incidents and they, they had all kinds of certifications and reports and attestations. Um, and, and it may be that those things were unavoidable and they contained them well and they handled them, right? Because we're all constantly under <laughs> under attack. Uh, but at the same time, it, it does make you question, like, how serious were they on the true risk management side? Like, to your point, how much time did they really take to say, okay, here's sort of the spirit of what this control is saying, but let's take our particular context into account and let's craft a truly uh, – appropriately sized defense or an appropriately uh, sized set of security controls to truly protect whatever asset this is meant to protect. Um, and it's, it's a balance, right? Because there, there's a lot of, of balancing and, and, and really there's a lot of marrying between the topics of compliance and security because compliance a lot of times is driven just strictly by business, right? A lot of people are not out searching for new compliance frameworks just for the sake of searching for them. Um, but similarly, your security posture may not improve, um, the ways that you, you should be improving it if you're not challenging yourself with particular, uh, security, uh, or, or compliance frameworks, right? So, so there's, there's sort of a balance between the two and each one has different aspects that I think it can add to the mix to, to help make a truly, uh, mature program. Definitely. Definitely. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I like them so much. So, you, you know, part of uh, CIS, one of my responsibilities is uh, obviously setting a tone for the organization and then working with a number. Obviously, we've got uh, a number of experts in the industry leading the way in, in these different areas. But for me, and I, I think the key word again, and I love this uh, this conversation is balance, is you know, you can go into an organization that's been strictly security. You know, we've, we've not really looked at external framework. Now we're entering in a space of third party risk management where it's required or it just makes our lives easier to, to move to a certification or an attestation. And that allows us then to, you know, offload some of that third party risk capability. But I like the balance piece because you can have an organization that has, um, you know, phenomenal security operations. Um, in terms of monitoring and assessing the infrastructure, but you look at identity and access management, you look at the management of underlying cryptography or server configuration and management, and those are completely unbalanced. You know, some organizations have very strong capability, 
But the reason for the framework, the reason for the cert is, like you say, it's balanced, right? You've got to be strong in all of these areas. So I've always used it in that way as a measure. Uh, you know, where are we doing well? And where is, you know, as we mentioned previously, continuous improvement. We've got to be looking at these things. We've got to understand where we sit with our particular posture for an organizational assessment so that we can then figure out where the strengths. And to your point, again, uh, you hit on another key element is that return on investment is, um, you know, do we need to spend a million dollars in each space in order to get the same return? You don't. No, absolutely not. What are you trying to protect? To one, you know, if it's yeah. not worth a million dollars, why are you spending a million dollars? That doesn't make zero sense. Um, and so being able then to reflect, look at the threat, use some underlying data. And I use the, uh, you know, the assessment frameworks and our resulting um, reports, both from internal audit and external assessment to really assess where we are and adjust, right? You have to adjust over time because it's not all, it's not the same environment. I mean, that literally, the threat environment changes practically daily. Uh, and so we've got to be aware of that, right? Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, you, you, just hit on a, a very interesting topic um, in uh, the ISO world right now, which is uh, threats. So there's a new control actually that they've just added to the 2022 framework um, around threat intelligence. Um, and if you take the time to read through the implementation guidance of that control, it's pretty detailed. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me because it's a net new control. It's not one that uh, is represented by the prior set of controls that was developed in 2013. So that tells you that there's a lot of focus in the industry in general on threat intelligence and threat monitoring and threat response, right? Um, it's and, and, and when you think about the word threat, threat implies it's not happened yet, right? It's a proactive view of the thing. Incident response is something's happened, let's do something about it. Threat monitoring, threat intelligence is Let's find out what's potentially coming for us and protect ourselves against it before it gets here. So it's it's very cool to me to see that that new control simply because of what it signifies in information security as a whole. And it's that we are moving towards compliance frameworks, um, forcing you, if you're going to adhere to them and get certified against them, forcing you to be more proactive in your approach to information security. And I love that. I, I think that's something that is, is fantastic. And I do think it's going to drive a lot more thought and consideration for the other side of the coin, which is security, right? I think that's where control sets like the CIS control set come into play because you're now going to say, okay, we've got these threats. What can we technically do about these things? Um, and I think it's going to drive a lot of collaboration between leadership and and maybe the functional side of the business and the technical side to really come up with a good uh, a good approach and a good set of security controls um, that's right sized for the assets that are going to be protected oh 100 percent 100 percent I think and I really like uh, this is another thought I'll, I'll save it for a moment but I just want to hit on one element that you mentioned was uh, the threat-informed approach, absolutely. You know, CIS controls, MITRE attack framework, MITRE defend, now all of this. And we've got such great information. I mean, freely available. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's never been a good enough time to assess threat and be able to understand tactics, techniques, procedures, and then underlying technical mitigation that can uh, assist in that space. Just 
phenomenal amount of information because we need it really. Uh, you know, we've, we've got to be threat informed and threat prepared to your uh, perspective in terms of incident response. And then that leads us um, to this other thought uh, that I just had based on what you were mentioning is we're starting to see the compliance frameworks, their guidance adjust now to the environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things uh, we can talk about and um, want to get your perspective is, you know, it may be that these frameworks can't take as long as they do. You know, where you had 2013, now it's 2022, a nine-year change. Is that the right cadence? Because the environment that we're living in, you know, I mean, cloud, containerization, I mean, microservices, DevOps, all of these things have Mm -hmm. specific different connotation that may not be the same as an on-prem perspective that we saw in 2013. What what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so... It's, it's so funny you say that because I was thinking about this exact thing um, coming into the, the episode here. Um, it is somewhat incredible to me that such a widely adopted framework such as ISO was largely unchanged. There were very minor changes over the course of nine years. And when you think about that, I mean, that's pretty wild. That's that, There's a lot that can happen in our, our space in nine years. Um, and so to your to your question, is that appropriate? I think that's where it, it can be if you take the right approach to this stuff. Because if you look at the control sets in ISO in particular, again, they're trying to inform a way of thinking more so than telling you what to do. If you look at specifically clauses 4 through 10, it calls out the need for a risk-based approach. And it even says it almost like uh, absolves itself of the responsibility, right? The way that ISO is written is it's got clauses four through 10 and 27,001. And that's sort of the governance framework you're getting certified against. And then it has a set of Annex A controls that are a suggested set of controls that, you know, they feel like cover a lot of your bases. But it says in clause six that it's, it's up to you to determine the appropriate controls based on the threats and the risks that you've identified. So, It's kind of funny to me because it's a little bit of CYA, if you're being honest, um, in in that it kind of puts the onus back on you as the organization to understand your environment enough to be able to answer that question for yourself. Are these controls appropriate, right? Fast forward to 2028, let's assume we've not had any updates to ISO or maybe it's been reviewed once and, you know, uh, re-approved. Are those controls still appropriate for you? Well, it's up to you, right? So they uh, they recognize the fact that things can change by crafting Clause 6 the way that they did. Um, and so I, I think it, it comes back down to an understanding of can you appropriately assess your environment? And, and that's something that is becoming harder and harder, honestly, because of, uh, of resources. Um, that's something I've seen a lot with organizations is you know, we've got a lot of sort of turmoil in general with people changing jobs a lot right now, you know, uncertainty in the economy, you know, there's been layoffs. That stuff is tough to deal with when you're trying to improve security posture. Because even if you have all the right security folks in the room to help make the decisions of what needs to happen, you may not have all of the pe- all of the people on the control owner side to enact those changes. And so there's a lot to consider. Um, as you're looking at a particular set of controls. And I do think that you have to buffer it with things like what you just said, the MITRE ATT&CK framework, 
uh, you know, the the CIS control set that that is updated more frequently because you have to take these things into account and not to get too far off off uh, topic here, but something that is very interesting to me um, is looking at how much faster we're getting at being able to use that type of information. So I look at the the MITRE attack framework, for instance, which by the way, if you're listening, you've not seen that website, you've not seen what we're talking about, stop right now, pause and go check it out. It's incredible. Um, but it, it can give you a lot of insights. But I, I think about the developments we've seen, I won't, I won't call them out specifically, but there's there's been uh, some interesting AI developments as of late. You've probably seen it all over social media, uh, people, you know, telling AI to, hey, what should I do about this? And it gives a very detailed, quick response. You partner something like the informed, people-driven uh, MITRE attack framework with something that can very quickly parse and sort through language. And now you've almost supplemented a little bit of uh, intelligence, which I think is really cool and I think can open the door for a lot more truly risk-based approach to control implementation. Um, and, and it might lessen the need for um, having to just know everything yourself, if that makes sense. Oh, it certainly does. No, I, I, again, I completely hear you on the other, you know, the AI ML topic. It's, you know, we've seen it, the buzz in the industry and, you know, you could play the buzzword bingo at any presentation and yeah. you, know, you would hear those terms. But I think in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a, a kind of the, the domino has now fallen and that there's yeah. an actual implementation and its effectiveness. I, we're, we've got an upcoming episode on 2023 predictions. That's one of mine uh, to the exact technology that you're speaking yeah. of. And it's a very interesting proposition. And like you say, I think uh, that brings new thought. And like you say, it's a, a way of thinking in terms of the frameworks, right? That the security way of thinking. But now I think there's an element, Sawyer, in my mind, that there's a kind of thinking outside of the box in some of these spaces because there's such a velocity of technology. And you mentioned that data. That data itself is increased in velocity in terms of what we can see within respective environments to understand those controls. And like you say, it's kind of dealer's choice with, with an organization and what how you apply this particular philosophy, this particular control, this particular requirement. And I think the complexity of that question has just increased so much because there's such a differing level of really true understanding of the implementation of respective technologies. I can see, and you, you know, we, we see even in the security industry is the, you know, the the next silver bullet, as it were, or the blinking flashing light or the new capability feature set functionality being integrated, either not fully understood or not fully utilized within an environment. And it's, you know, done because it's the, the cool thing to do, as it were, or it's the, the net new yeah. thing that got sold. And it just leads us to one, we mentioned the return on investment. Are you getting the full capability out or two, have you implemented so fast your innovation uh, cycle is way beyond your control cycle? And now you're in a space of, well, I don't even know how to control this. We, we've moved beyond, uh, you know, that requisite 2013 knowledge. And, you know, I'm just playing around with uh, with some of the timelines here to what we see in 2022 going into 2023. Those are, uh, I mean, vastly different uh, in, uh, landscapes. Uh, than we've ever seen before. 
So uh, something that you just sort of sparked in my mind, Sean, that um, I've thought a lot about is I, I would almost call it the danger of enablement, um, mostly through a lot of these cloud technologies. Um, what, what's so interesting to me is people are becoming more and more capable of spinning up certain types of functionality without a prerequisite knowledge of what they're building and how to secure it. And that's great for go-to-market, right? That's great for the, the four-person startup company that needs to, you know, demonstrate their product can function to get that seed round or, you know, that maybe that uh, early A round or something. Um, but it, it's very concerning and dangerous when you look at it from our perspective of security. It's like you, you have to understand what you're dealing with to be able to secure it appropriately. And I, I truly think a lot of organizations are simply um, not, I don't want to say they're flying under the radar, but they're just not on the radar of the attackers yet. I think there's so much more vulnerability in the market than people truly realize. I think that it's just a matter of who are the attackers focused on right now, um, especially these young companies, right? And, and, and the more and more capability that we have of handling these massive data sets. I mean, just the other day, I was, uh, I got an ad from AT&T for five gigabit internet in my home. And I'm like, the amount of data that we are processing is just insane. And, you know, these startup companies pulling in some of these, you know, heavy data companies pulling in just petabytes of data to compile and do things with. And, and it's like, these are just treasure troves for attackers. And I just, I wonder, like, do they know how to protect that stuff? And, and I, I, it, you almost have to say there's no way because they don't even have enough people to have the breadth of expertise that they need to protect this stuff. So, so it's, 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 you know, exciting in a sense because the, the innovation is driving new features and new value for society but it's terrifying in a sense because it's also creating a much larger gap between the knowledge and understanding of what you're building and how to protect it. Oh, absolutely right. No, no question. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing as uh, you mentioned something um, that I think is um, palpable is this is that at the fingertips now of organizations, it's not procurement. It's literally I can write, you know, a JSON script get something cloud formation, and I can build an entire infrastructure within minutes, right? And that's, uh, you know, obviously using AWS as an example there. But, you know, we could go agnostic and use Terraform. Uh, it's perfectly fine. Um, but one of the things that we have, though, is we've got such capability, and to your point, is the requisite understanding of security to manage those environments, I feel, and to your point, doesn't exist. And it's really, um, you know, if you get into the attacker's crosshairs, you know, using some imagery here, um, I, I don't think there's a chance, to be honest. Uh, you know, I'm no. also one of the things I've been researching myself because it's critically important to keep, to your point, continuous learning is API. I think the APIs is a an infrastructure that is a hotbed for uh, vulnerability and mismanagement. I think there's consequences that we have yet to foresee um, in that space that could lead to massive, massive reputational issue and damage. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I can speak to this directly, having been sort of on the inside of some of the software companies I came from, there's a constant struggle just to keep the API functionality and offering up to date with the, you know, application development, right? The APIs will break. There's, you know, new things they need to, like companies are struggling just to deliver what they, what they need to from the functionality perspective. And it is so easy to overlook, you know, are we scoping the permissions of this API endpoint appropriately? Like should a, you know, analyst role within the software be able to pull this back with a Git call? You know, right. like, are there people really taking the time to examine that type of stuff? Um, you know, and, and, and so you're, you're spending a ton of time and there's a lot of cool tools and automation on the front end of through the application interface. I can't see this or that, which is appropriate for my role. And I can't see this other organization stuff. But so often, I mean, we, we run uh, penetration tests. We have a Renegade Labs department um, that, that does offensive security at Risk 360. And the number of findings they have around APIs is, is to your point, somewhat alarming um, because people, I don't, I don't know that the, the organizations necessarily understand how much can be gathered through APIs. And a lot of times the protection is just, well, do you have a key and are you running too many calls per minute? And if you're not, you know, if both those things check the box, you're good to go. Just uh, keep running those APIs. Exactly. So, uh, and, and they're silent, right? There's not like, a lot of stuff that's uh, really watching what's coming back and forth because it's you know standard formatting. There's just there's not a lot of heuristic flags to like set off on uh, the API side. Oh, absolutely. And you have to know those flags, right? You have to be informed to even have them set. And uh, you know, like you say, I think it's just uh, an element of convenience uh, and getting this capability, this functionality enabled as a, uh, you know, from a business perspective, it's very important. And I, you know, we are in an API infrastructure. I get it. Uh, I understand it. I just think we're, you know, kind of setting ourselves up to, you know, go back 20 years. And it's kind of the same thing I reflect on in the IoT industry is, you know, we've, we've not got good security practices or engineering practices in that space. It seems like we keep resetting ourselves back to this point where, all right, security is the last thing we think about again. Now we've got to go build framework, structure, security, control, management, understand the risk. Can we even conceptualize the risk? And I think that's a huge problem in the organizations uh, that I've seen, uh, you know, and you know, try and work with is that yeah. there's just this uh, mismanagement. And I also think, um, and maybe this is less to a lesser point, but I think possibly we're giving too much up to automation or trusting that what we've yes. set up is functioning as intended. We've no bounds checking on any of that stuff. And it just seems, oh, I got it, set it up, wrote a script, you know, everything software defined now, it's running fine. And there's, you know, gaps that, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. you say, adversaries are uh, either um, taking advantage of and we just don't know, um, or they are... Uh, you know, augmenting their capability to make maximum effectiveness of it. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I like to think in like analogies and kind of pictures. Um, and I picture it as like, uh, imagine a fully automated bank, right? There's like robots moving the money and spitting it out of the little slot for all the customers. If someone manages to get on the inside of that bank, the robots don't know they shouldn't be there. The robots don't, you know, it's like yep. without the people there watching without, which is, yeah, but arguably inefficient, right? You might have business costs by having people instead of robots, but 
there's a value there for sure because those people would immediately say, hey, you're not supposed to be here. But the automation may not know unless it's been trained to know that that intruder should not be there. And you touched on what I believe may be this might be far-fetched, but I, I might argue this is the biggest skills gap in information security. And it's people who understand the software layer as well as the actual hardware layer, specifically in IoT, right? IoT devices run a, a lot of times on, um, you know, something they call ladder logic. My dad's an electrician. He, he used to, you know, uh, he worked for General Motors for a long time. He would program the, you know, giant robot arms to come pick up car chassis and do all kinds of stuff. And so he, he has a fundamental understanding of that physical uh, functionality of those robots. But then he doesn't necessarily get the software side. And then there's a lot of people who understand, you know, oh, the software can interact with those robots and it can pull this data and do this and tell them how to do that. But they have no idea how those robots function. Um, my brother is an electrical engineer who gets both sides of that. And the company he works for leverages that heavily. And he's literally the only person in this multi-thousand person company who can speak to the security uh, architecture of their factories. Because um, they have, you know, all kinds of vendors and stuff that they want to, you know, they want a remote endpoint into their robot that's in the factory so they can troubleshoot. And he's like, no, you have to go through our stuff. We have to have a shutoff valve because how do I know that you're going to do the things you need to to secure your end of things, right? And, and I don't realize, I don't think companies realize how many holes they have in their network for an IoT network because there's so often... Uh, the vendors providing the different IoT devices, they have almost unfettered access into those things, meaning it could be leveraged to gain unfettered access into your entire network. Now you're not just talking about some data that might you know, expose some personal information. You're talking about something that can be hijacked, that can, can literally injure or even kill people. I mean, it's, it's genuinely one of the most serious physical security risks there are in information security. Oh, no question. Think of uh, critical infrastructure and manage getting into that because it's all the, you know, like you say, it's the, um, you know, it's those remote endpoints that are not monitored, you know, don't even know they're open. And what are they using? Default username and password against every system they've ever created. And I, get, I know right. there's improvement in that space, but it still exists because this and here's the biggest issue. When are those systems updated? Hardly ever. When they're right. replaced? How long, you know, return on investment, we mentioned all the way back, you know, these systems could be in play for 10 years and nothing, no one touches them in any respect or form in terms of the underlying software. As long as they're operating, what do we care, right? As long as they're 100%. taking that car chassis, putting it on the conveyor, I'm happy. And um, yeah. you may not be happy, you know, when it uh, decides to crush that uh, particular, you know, like you say, there's injury, there's implants, there's affecting our supply chain. If that gets into critical infrastructure, you imagine, you know, we, we've seen it in Ukraine, unfortunately, in terms of the electric yeah. grid and everything that can happen. And the consequences of that is, to your point, it's life safety. It's a whole, you know, we talk in terms of, you know, our engagement of controls of managing PII, right, and, and managing uh, data assets. But this this is a whole different space. Um, so I can expect your brother to be getting a lot of offers from a lot of organizations <laughs> when he's got that skill set, right? Because you're right. It is yeah, he the, stays busy. <laughs> I mean, it's the biggest gap that we see because there's 
very hard because there's such a knowledge base in each side of the house to have both, to be able to cross collaborate those two things. It is um, a rarity. Hopefully we start to see it, uh, you know, become less rare, but today I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, I, I wonder what, uh, what types of next steps are going to be taken? I mean, you, you've touched on like critical infrastructure at, you know, really like the national security level. Um, and again, to your earlier point, the more automation that we have, um, the, the more dangerous it gets. But, but one of the things that bugs me the most is there's, you know, you touched on something else, which is almost like a, it's a fear driven approach, right? People are, a lot of times, not to their fault, it's because they understand the consequences if they mess something up. But people are, through fear, uh, motivated to not change things because it's working. Right. And that is such a dangerous sentiment. Um, and I, 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 you know, organizations, it's, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's easy to sit, you know, one of the easiest things to do is walk around and criticize, right? Um, and, and I don't mean to only criticize. Um, because I understand the challenges that organizations face to set up infrastructure to be able to test new controls, to test new configurations, to test things, to make sure it's not going to interfere with, you know, the lifeblood of a business, which is the money side. Um, and, and so I understand the challenges. These are not, you know, things I'm not trying to, to minimize or dismiss them, but we almost have to shift a little bit towards having more of a fiduciary responsibility towards security and we kind of have to take some of these risks um you know and if your business is not set up in a way where you can you can proactively test new configurations and things to to continue to harden and improve your security posture um then i i would take a long hard pause there because that that you know might spell disaster down the road for you you, you really need to be able to proactively interact with your environment and and you know continue to to build that best practice security posture. Definitely. Definitely. No, I think you're right. And I think, you know, then does that lead us back to a kind of the, the outset of this is, is it a compliance requirement that these organizations then have in order to build that type of functioning? Here's your motivation, right? There's the fear of change, but here's a requirement that you're going to have to do because we need to protect mm -hmm. the underlying supply chain, industry, infrastructure, etc. Does it come back to that being the, um, you know, that's another fear of, oh, if I'm not compliant, I'm no longer competitive. I no longer can make money in this particular space with this particular customer, et cetera. You know, just throwing things out there to, to see what we think. Um, again, it's, uh, you know, you want everybody to be like uh, kind of security minded, like us, you know, it kind of second nature to the things we do. But there's, you know, other people that, this is brand new. It's like you've, you've, you know, I don't know where to even start with trying to implement some of these things. There's mm -hmm. no defined framework. You're asking me to comply with something that I've never seen. Where's my training? What do I need to get up to speed? And it's, uh, you know, I don't think we can throw some personal certs at them and say, go do that type of work and you're yeah. ready to go. It, it's, I think there's a lot more, um, need in the environment to where it's curated approach here's best practice here's how you 
kind of, and you, you may have heard the term, and especially in software where we're shifting left, get that all the way back to the original development, the OME, OEM, sorry, and getting those practices put in play and, and kind of through osmosis absorb all of that security down to the line level. You know, it's a, like you say, it's a difficult task and we're not here to judge by no means. We're here to help. Yeah, it's all about right. awareness and bringing, um, you know, responsibility to every practitioner in the space. We've got something to say we can contribute either through, you know, podcasts, putting up frameworks, working with, you know, best practices, blog posts, things of that nature. And we've got a lot of great security researchers in the space. You know, we've got some that uh, obviously have malicious intent, but we've got some that are so willing to spend their time on YouTube and, and you know, really bring awareness uh, is uh, fantastic. So there's never been a better time. I just think there's, we've got that technical debt maybe of a, you know, a decade that we've got to uh, yeah. erase somehow quite quickly. Yeah. I, I think um, one of the most important things for security leaders or, or just business leaders in general who may be listening, one of the most important things for, for them to do is to, spend an appropriate amount of time with the people who do understand these topics and these concepts within your organization to get a good handle on your risk landscape, because there's a lot of ways you can address it, right? You don't necessarily have to fix everything yourself. Um, you can share that risk. You can transfer that risk. You can, you know, there's a lot of approaches to how you handle it to, to bring your, your risk profile down to an acceptable level. And, and that's, kind of the theme of ISO, like if I had to describe it in a single sentence, it would be managing risk to an acceptable level. Um, that's really the the whole point of it. And I think that's what most frameworks are trying to drive at anyway, is they're trying to give you ways um, to, they're, they're either trying to mandate that you do that, or they're trying to provide you with tools to do that. Um, but it, it all comes down to understanding that risk landscape appropriately. So um, a lot of times I think leaders are, they're, they're so burdened with so many different problems of the business, you know, uh, how do we expand here? How do we sell this new product? How do we, uh, you know, go through this merger or this acquisition? How do we handle, you know, this hiccup in the economy? Like all these different problems are coming at them from, from a hundred different ways. And, and it's, it's, uh, a lot of times that, that security, you know, voice, uh, can just be one of many. Um, but, but I encourage you all not to discount that and to, to spend the appropriate amount of time, uh, working with the people within your organization that understand the risks in their various areas so that you can get that high level picture and make those appropriate management level decisions that need to be made about, you know, how you're going to handle risks down to that acceptable level. Definitely. No better sentiment, Sire. And so I think, um, like I say, we, we could, spend days upon days talking yeah. about this. So we've reached the time and I, I sorry, I'm going to leave it there with you because that was a perfect segue for any leader, any security professional needs to then let their leadership know, Hey, let's spend some time working through understanding risk at a different level, operationally, tactically, and strategically for the organization. Absolutely fantastic. But it does lead me, Sawyer, to our last segment, which I call the Atkinson Nine, uh, the, the the nine questions that I uh, like to ask my guests. So if it's all right with you, uh, we'll jump straight in. How's that sound? Yeah. Perfect. Sounds great. All right, Sawyer. What is your favorite CIS control? Yeah. Um, so I think control four, the uh, secure configuration of enterprise assets and software, is one of my favorite uh, because it it covers the idea that you can't just set it and forget it. 
right? To me, that's one of the most important things to understand in security is it's never set it and forget it. Um, and, and this control calls for in the, you know, the way it's broken down, it calls for you to not only understand the appropriate baseline for an in, initial implementation of, you know, some kind of enterprise assets, but it calls for the ongoing maintenance, monitoring, and understanding of those and a continuous tweaking of that baseline to keep it secure over time. So I just love that control. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, in your profession, what you do, what is your least favorite part? Yeah, it, it's probably what I touched on earlier. It's that a lot of times people are, are so afraid of uh, changing something because they're worried it's going to break some business process or it's going to break some something tied to production. Um, and, and I understand that sentiment, but I just, I hate that that's a sentiment, right? I, I wish people had the abilities, the functionality, and also the the freedom to to make changes and mistakes like that. And a lot of times people do have it, right? Leadership wants them to go for it um, and, and to help make things better. But people are just, you know, people are resistant to change in general. It's just human nature. Um, and so that's the part that I, I, I want to kind of help not drive out of people, but encourage them out of it, right? I want to coax people out of that mindset because, um, you know, much like dieting, right? It's a lot of times you're so scared to start the change, but that change is going to be the best thing for you. So. Exactly. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. What do you like about the cybersecurity industry? Oh man, it's, uh, it's never stale. I love how, you know, security is one of those things that, um, it, it is constantly required to keep up with, probably the fastest changing thing in the world right now, which is technology. And so I just love that, you know, security mandates that you stay up to, to speed on that stuff. Um, it, it just makes sure that I never have a boring day. So. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, what don't you like about the cybersecurity industry? Yeah, it's that, uh, you always have to stay up to speed on everything. That, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very demanding. Um, it, it can be certainly demanding. Um, I think that sometimes it can be overwhelming to know which direction to go with your training. Uh, you know, how do I how do I continue to stay as a trusted advisor in security? Well, you know, do I go study, you know, cloud technology? Do I go study, you know, IoT? Uh, like like it's 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 tough sometimes to keep a, a pulse on the industry and to understand where you need to go, continue to develop yourself. Um, but I think that's where it's so important to have, you know, mentors and advisors and people in, in all those different areas to, to help give you good sound advice. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. What source of data logging telemetry monitoring do you love? Yeah, this is a tough one. Uh, mainly cause I'm, I'm not, you know, this is, this is one of the areas I've never had hands-on experience in. I've done enterprise configurations and networking management and stuff like that. Um, but monitoring the logs has not been something that I've been super in tune with. So this is a tough question for me, but if I had to say, I, I, I would say it's probably, um, the administrative logging of the back end because that's kind of where the skeletons are always hidden. Um, you know, the front end logging for like the users logging into an application, for instance, um, 
that stuff's usually pretty tame. Um, unless there's a bug, there's not usually much going on there that's uh, juicy, so to speak. But when you start looking at like a Windows server, for instance, and you start seeing administrative changes that have taken place, someone who has remoted into that server directly, you say, well, I thought there was a control where they have to go through XYZ to deploy changes to the server. Well, there are, but you can still do this, this, and this. And, and that's usually where you start to kind of peel back the layers and really get an understanding of like how much... Uh, you know, duct tape and strings are there in this environment. <laughs> a formal control versus a shadow control. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Fantastic. Uh, what's the biggest waste of time in cybersecurity? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, this one's tough. I, I think, again, I think it's, uh, we get a lot of times caught up in, I don't want to say arguing, but like, like debating the necessity for a particular control. Um, and a lot of times the reason we're debating it is not at all why we should be debating it, <laughs> right? We're not looking at it from the perspective of what risks do we have and what, you know, what would this control do for us? We're looking at it as, well, this is going to take a lot of time or, you know, this is not going to be something that's fun or this is going to be hard to maintain or, you know, a lot of different reasons. And, and those may be valid reasons to, to not implement a particular control. But if you don't approach it with that fundamental understanding of why you should be debating whether a control should be in place or not, then you're going to just kind of start off in left field to begin with and probably stay there. Yep. Perfect. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? This is kind of, uh, it's kind of funny, but I honestly, I think I would love to, um, do one of two things, either, uh, something in blockchain. I've, I've been really big in crypto for a long time. Um, I've, you know, mined crypto. I mined a bunch of crypto in 2014 with a little rig that I built. Um, don't worry, sold it all before it was worth nothing or before it was worth anything. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just love crypto. I, I play with like the, the DeFi stuff a lot. Um, I stay up to date on a lot of these goofy, uh, you know, do nothing projects. Um, but I, I do think there's a ton of utility out there specifically in NFTs. Um, so I, I would love to do something there. And then I always, uh, I, I come from a blue collar background. Um, my, my dad was a blue collar guy and I, I always miss in my day to day sort of that hands-on, uh, you know, labor. So I, I, I really love, um, that, that side of things as well. And I think if I had to pick, it would probably be, uh, becoming a welder. Wow. So. Fantastic. Yeah. What profession would you avoid? Yeah, that one's tough. I think um, maybe it's because I had a, a somewhat of a traumatic exposure to the industry, but I think like banking and finance is so tough for me. I'm just, I'm not wired that way. I, I know guys that are, and I trust people that are with, you know, with uh, helping me with like money management and stuff. But my goodness, it, it just takes a special kind of person to really stay up to speed in that industry and to to handle such pressure. I mean, the the amount of like pressure and short period of time that seems to go along with every problem in that industry, um, you know, that that you're challenged with solving is overwhelming to me. So that's one I would probably avoid at all costs. Okay. And the last, at the end of your career, how would you like to be remembered? As someone who did the right thing, um, whether the right thing was uh, difficult or accepted or not, um, I'd like to be remembered as someone who you could always count on to do the right thing. Awesome. Absolutely. 
Well, Sawyer, absolutely phenomenal episode. We'll have you back in 2023. We've got a lot more to cover. Obviously, we, uh, again, like I say, we could go on for hours with this one particular topic. But thank you so much, Sawyer. It was great to have you on the show. Um, and to the audience, thank you. Uh, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And with that, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.